1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. We continue today with our series on I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. And the subtitle today, Becoming All Things to All People in order that we might by all means save some. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, I'll start reading there and we'll read down through verse 23. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, I became as without law though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. The first question I want to ask from this text is, what's the aim of Paul in this strategy of adaptation to other people? What's the aim? Why does he become a Jew to the Jew and lawless to the lawless and weak to the weak? Tremendously important question because he's asking us to join him here and to live lives that we would not choose to live if we didn't share his aim. So understanding what his aim is, is utterly crucial. The aim is obvious because he mentions it six times, five in the very same words. Let's look at those. Verse 19 that I may win the more. Verse 20, that I may win the Jews. Another time in verse 20, that I may win those under the law. Verse 21, that I may win those who are without the law. Verse 22, that I may win the weak. So five times his aim is to win people, to win them. Then, in verse 22, at the end, he says in a summary statement with different words, I have become all things to all men that I might, by all means, save some. So five times he uses the word win, to win them, and one time he uses the word save. I am adapting to people wherever I go in order that I might save them. And then he gives a third goal or a third aim in verse 23. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. 
I think Linsky is exactly right when he says, Paul is saying, if I omit this concern of love for others, although through my work, devoid of such love, many others may be saved, I myself would not be saved. In other words, the third goal of Paul in denying himself his own personal preferences and in obedience to Jesus, taking up his cross and becoming a slave of all is that he might be saved. In other words, it's very simple. He says, if I were to stop loving people, if I were to renounce my call by the Lord Jesus, if I were to turn away from concern about the salvation of others, I would bear witness that my faith is false and I would be lost. So we have three statements of the aim of Paul here, that I might win the more, that I might save some, and that I might participate myself in the benefits of the gospel and the salvation that I am offering to others. Now, the answer, I think, then, is straightforward. His aim is to save people, but we need to ask, what? From? Save from what? Win for what? Participate in what? There's a real clear answer to this in Romans 5.9. Let me read that verse to you. Having now been justified by His blood... We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The answer to the question, saved from what, is the wrath of God. I become all things to all people in order that I might save some from the wrath and the judgment of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Jesus delivers us, that is, saves us from the wrath to come. So what is Paul laboring and adapting and humbling himself and becoming a slave to all people's needs? What's he doing that for? To rescue them from the wrath of God. Or let's ask the positive side of it. Win them for what? Gain them for what? Jesus gave the alternative to the wrath of God in John 3.36 like this. He who believes in the Son, if you believe in the Son of God this morning, Jesus Christ, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So you got two possibilities. To believe in the Son and have eternal life, or not to believe in the Son and have almighty, infinite, holy, just anger from God resting upon you. Those are the two possibilities for living your life. And so the positive alternative for which he's winning people is eternal life. Our goal and our aim 
is to save people from the wrath of God, to win them for eternal life, and in living that kind of love, become a partaker ourselves in the gospel by bearing witness to the fact that our faith is real. And we really do believe in heaven and hell and redemption. Now, right here in the message, we need to kind of ask a question. Do you believe in the wrath of God? Do you believe in the wrath of God? That it's coming upon the world? I think one of the reasons, and a very large one, that we make so little effort to rescue people is because we don't believe in the wrath of God. Check yourself. The books you've been reading, the way you think, would it be true, as it seems to me is the case in contemporary Christianity in America, that for most people, the gospel is thought of in terms of as another strategy to help solve psychological problems. It's mainly a psychological therapeutic conception that people have. It will help you with your depression. It will help you with your grief. It will help you with your abandonment. It'll help you with your loneliness. It'll help you with your anger. It'll help you with your low self-esteem. It'll help you with your fear, etc., etc., I want to ask you if you believe this. I believe that if the gospel had no bearing at all on those things, it would be unspeakably good news. Because it delivers us from the wrath to come. My little battles with depression are nothing compared to the wrath to come. Nothing. My little loneliness, my little job problems, my little relationship things are nothing. When Almighty God steps forth out of heaven with fire in His eyes against unbelievers, you know what they do in Revelation 6? They cry for the rocks to fall upon them and crush them to death, lest they have to face the wrath of the Lamb. So, the good news is that whether the gospel makes any difference in your personal problems at all, it is spectacularly good news. Gloriously good news. And nobody else but Jesus in this world offers it. There are many, many people offering helps for my psyche. That's not my main job. It is not the church's main job. Our main job is the big thing. What becomes of you when you die? What becomes of you when the heavens are rent and the trumpet sounds and the angels stand forth and the elect are gathered and the rest are put into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth? I mean, the words Jesus uses to describe the wrath to come are horrendous words. 
fire and darkness and gnashing of teeth and the worm does not die. Now I ask you, do you believe in it? Because nobody in this culture outside those who believe the Word of God are helping you believe in it. This culture is doing nothing to help you believe in the big things in the universe. This culture is devoted 110% to distract you from the big things in the universe. And to help you believe that money is the big thing, position is the big thing, and coolness is the big thing. That's probably the biggest thing. Be cool. And there's all kinds of cool. There's there's middle-aged 50 cool, and there's old cool, and there's young cool, and there's teenage cool, and there's sport cool, and there's art cool. But cool, don't diff me, is the thing. That's the big thing. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it's a little thing. Money's a little thing. Position is a little thing. Coolness is a little thing. And the wrath of God is a big thing. And nobody in this culture is talking about it. Nobody. And therefore, you're having a hard time believing in it. Because you're all, and I'm all, a part of this culture. We soak in this culture. Which is why our only hope for believing in what makes the gospel good news is to soak in this book like that. You got to do something with this book to get it into your head and heart. So this week, I stopped right here. I was working on this yesterday and I stopped and said, now what practical thing can I do? Because I, I'm not on TV. TV never is talking about the wrath of God. Nobody comes away from the TV shuddering at the wrath of God. Well, I'll write a star article. <laughs> That's my vehicle. So what I've done is I wrote a little star article this week on the wrath of God, and it'll get in your house toward the end of the week or next week. And it's just eight or nine texts, eight or nine texts to help you meditate on this. I don't know any other way to help you believe in the wrath of God than to encourage you to meditate on it. Meditate on it. Take some verses, read them, roll them over in your mind, think about them as you look at this TV program, think about them as you read this newspaper, think about them as you look at that neighbor, think about them as you look at all those cars on the freeway going by. Think about the wrath of God. Because if you don't believe in the wrath of God, the gospel is not the gospel. Because the gospel saves And if you don't feel yourself in any jeopardy with the wrath of God, God's good news will not be good news to you. You will shape it, and this is what we're doing in America today, you will shape the good news according to your little teeny-weeny felt needs. And then you will explode those felt needs as though they're the biggest thing in the world. I can't live if I don't get this relationship fixed. That's not the big deal. The big deal is, will you be rescued from the wrath of God when he comes? That's the big deal. I hope that you believe in it. And if you're struggling to believe in it, there are ways to increase your faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God.
Let's ask one more question. What's Paul's strategy to save people from the wrath of God? His strategy is very plain here. Verse 19 articulates it like this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. Paul's strategy is to use his Christian freedom to become a slave to everybody. Say it again. Paul's strategy to save people is to use his Christian freedom to become a slave of everybody. It's like Jesus said, he would be great, must be the servant of all. Martin Luther in 1520, the great German reformer, wrote a, a treatise, I, I wish you would all read it, called The Freedom of a Christian. It's a great little 50-page thing. He begins it with this paradox. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That's who a Christian is. A Christian uses that freedom in love to become a servant of all. Luther goes on and says, these two theses seem to contradict each other, but both are Paul's own statements who says in 1 Corinthians 9.19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. And in Romans 13.8, owe no one anything except to love one another. Love by its very nature, Luther says, is ready to serve and be subject to him who is loved. So very simply, Paul's strategy to save people from the wrath to come is love, taking the form of servanthood, taking the form of adaptation to what they are like. Galatians 5.13 puts it like this. You were called to freedom, brethren. We are the freest of all people, we Christians. You were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity to the, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's what Paul is doing here in verse 19. In my freedom, he says, I voluntarily make myself a slave of all. That is, my strategy is love. Now, if you want to see this more clearly... Let's zero in on the three things that Paul says about his relationship to the law. This is so rich. I want, I want you to get this because it's so crucial that you understand as a free person, a Christian, what's your relationship to the law of God and how does that bear on how much freedom you have to adapt to the lawless out there? Okay. Here are the three things that Paul says about his relationship to the law. Verse 20, near the end. To those who are under the law, I became as under the law, though, here it is, number one, though not being myself under the law. So the first thing we say is Paul is not under the law. Second, verse 21. To those who are without law, I became as without law, though not being without the law of God. So there's the second thing he says. The first thing he says is, I am not under law, 
And the second thing, the first thing he says is, I'm not under law. And the second thing he says is, I'm not without the law of God. So not under it, but not without it. Here's the third thing he says. Namely, verse 21. But I am under the law of Christ. So he says three things about his relation to the law. Number one, I am not under the law. Number two, I am not without the law. Number three, I am under the law of Christ. And, and when, I, when I read that, and I'm trying to figure this out, trying to figure out how to do a sermon here and apply it to my life, my response is, good night, Paul. That's complicated. That's involved. And I think Paul would say, Life is complicated. Life is involved. Especially if your aim as a newborn, being sanctified Christian is to become lawless for the lawless that you might win some. That's complicated. That's tough to become a law keeper for the law keepers to win some and a non-law keeper for the non-law keepers to win some and weak to the weak and strong to the strong. I mean, you're walking a razor's edge of complicatedness here in life when you make that your aim. You're on the brink of idolatry. You're on the brink of compromise. You're on the brink of worldliness. You're on the brink of sin. There's this razor's edge that you're walking when you try to love like Paul is loving here. And here's the two sides of the razor's edge. You've got a razor here. And we're walking down this razor's edge. And on the one side of the razor's edge, you've got um, intense separatism. That has no use to the world because there's no connection with the world. And on the other side of the razor's edge, you've got unprincipled expediency where you don't have anything to offer the world because you're exactly like the world. And they don't have a clue that you have anything distinctive or different to offer. And there is a razor's edge between those two ways to lead the Christian life. And people are falling off right and left into those two camps, becoming worldly like the world and becoming so separatistic from the world that there's no connection with the world and therefore no impact on the world and nobody rescued from the world. Which side are you tipping on? You see why it's difficult? Why you need to say, oh, law of God, law of Christ, what is my relationship to you that I might stay on this razor's edge and help people over? Instead of flopping into the one with worldliness or flopping into the other with smug, cool, separated holiness. Lord, help me, help us. Yes, it's complicated. Yes, it's difficult. But that's the way life is. And you're all living it. And you know it's hard. You've got all kinds of questions about how to do it and how to be it. I think the answer of how to do it and be it is to get our relationship to the law clear. So let me just... As we move to the end here, rehearse these three things again and and apply it to you. Number one, you, Christian, are not under law. 
Two things I think that means. One, you're not bound to earn your salvation by the law. You could never earn it by the law. Jesus earned your salvation by his death and resurrection. And secondly, it means that you are not bound to live under the dietary, ceremonial, separated law of the Old Testament. Things like circumcision, uh, holy days, no ham or catfish, no mixed fibers, etc. You're free. From all of those, I am free to go to an animist house for dinner and a secular humanist house for dinner and eat what they set before me. No questions asked. That's how free I am. Second, if you're not under the law in that sense, those two senses. Second, you are nevertheless not without the law of God. Without the law of God. You're not without the law of God, he says in verse 21. Now, what does that mean? 1 Corinthians 7, 19, Paul says an amazing and paradoxical thing. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Hmm, Now, wait a minute. Circumcision is a commandment of God. Genesis 17. It's verses like that which have forced theologians to distinguish between the ceremonial law, which I just described a little bit, and moral law. The one passing away as the gospel moves out from its Israelite distinctiveness and limitation to the nations and the other flowing out of God's very moral character abiding forever, which we can never be without. And therefore, we are not without the moral law of God. We are out without those, those ceremonial things that set the Jews off so that they could have a distinct witness among the nations in those days in that way. And now as Christ has come and done away with the sacrificial system and opened up the whole gospel so it's not ethnically bound anymore, but going to all the nations, many of those things drop away. How then shall we define the moral law? And that's the third thing. He calls it the law of Christ in verse 21. We are under the law of Christ, and I think that's the law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the only other place that's used in the New Testament, the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. In other words, uh, become a servant to others in love and fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is Galatians 5.14 The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James calls it the royal law. He calls it the law of liberty. That's an amazing phrase. The law of liberty. I think he means, I think Paul would say the same thing. Christians are the freest of all people. Free from sin. Free from wrath. Free from guilt. Free from the need to earn our way to heaven because Christ has paid our debt. And in that freedom, the Holy Spirit 
bears the fruit of love which willingly and joyfully submits to the law of love. It's the law of liberty because it's flowing from liberty. It's embraced in liberty. It's an expression of liberty. It's not constraint from outside doing what you don't want to do. The Holy Spirit is doing it. So Paul says in Galatians 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Because the Spirit leads you joyfully and freely to embrace what is lawful. So what does it look like when you live like this? For love's sake, in freedom, you try to overcome every unnecessary alienating difference between you and those you're trying to reach. Let me say that again. You make an effort to overcome every unnecessary alienating difference between you and those you're trying to reach. For love's sake... You learn the Manica language. Might cost you a lifetime. You translate the Bible into Manica so that you don't assume a position of paternalistic superiority and say, if you want to read the Bible, you read my language. You give your whole life away under another person to bring them up to read the Bible in their own language. You become that to them. You eat dinner when and where they want to eat. You dress like the natives in America. This, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. I tied it three times this morning to get that thing to come out right there at the end. This is ridiculous. But this is the way we do it in America. I mean, you, a lot of you don't. That's okay. I'm glad. We got that breadth of, of freedom here. A lot of, but we all look like American natives here. There's nobody with kilts on in this room. Or G-string or anything else. It's just we're all natives here. That's good. That's good. That's the way it ought to be pretty much. And we need to get into their politics. Caucuses coming, folks. Do it. Get into their sports. Get into their businesses. Get into their face for Jesus. Last two tests. Two tests, because I know this is tough. I know that once you say, yes, for love's sake, I will become all things to all people that I might win some from the wrath of God. But what is the test of whether I'm going too far? Test number one. Are you becoming more worldly minded than those you love are becoming spiritually minded? Test yourself. I know a lot of teenagers sling this thing around. And say, oh, I go learn, listen to this kind of music because that's what everybody else listens to. I just want to say this. It is the music that you listen to contaminating your mind such that you don't have much to offer anymore. And your passion for their salvation is gone. If I believed that listening to anything under the sun would be a means to somebody's salvation, I'd say, listen. What I find is that teenagers who are Christian listen because they like it and thus are contaminated by it. That's a parenthesis. That's not in the... So my, my test is this. becoming Are you becoming more worldly-minded than those you're trying to win are becoming spiritually-minded? 
Christ doesn't call you to lose your holiness, but to gain theirs. Here's the second test. This one's probably more important. Is your passion, as you become like people, to win them, is your passion for winning your friends and family growing or shrinking by the lifestyle adaptations you are making? If it is shrinking, you're not in the law of Christ anymore. In other words, there are steps you can take for the sake of winning, which are so deceptive that after you've taken three of them, you no longer want to win them anymore. It's gone. The desire is gone. The passion's gone. The world is so much a part of you now that you don't believe in the wrath of God anymore. You don't shed any more tears. There's no agony of soul in prayer for these lost ones. You've just adapted to them. And now you're one of them. That's, that's a test. So we sum it up like this. Christ died to set us free. Christ died to set us free. Free from the wrath of God. Free from the loveless limits of the law. And free for love and for eternal life. So let us walk a razor's edge at Bethlehem. And oh, may God do it. In 1996, as we go for harvesting 2,000 by 2,000, a razor's edge between separatistic uh, isolation over here that's of no use to the world because it's got no contact with the world and uh, unprincipled expediency and adaptation over here that becomes so like the world that the world could never begin to th- think that there's anything different in us to offer. Let's be salt. Let's be gracious. Let's make the world thirsty by getting near enough to them so they can taste and know that what they taste is different because it's free. Let's pray. Father, oh, do this. This is a, this is a miracle lifestyle we're talking about here, Father. Would you do it for the sake of the lost who don't know about the wrath of God in heart? who are therefore vulnerable to it and who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, give us a heart for them like we sang earlier. I'll be here at the front and prayer teams will be here at the front. If any of you needs to get right with God yourself or wants to pray about this kind of Becoming all things to all people, we'd love to take a few minutes and pray with you. Would you stand with me for the benediction? Now may the Lord give you this kind of razor's edge walk. May He bless you with wisdom. May He bless you with courage this week. May the Lord bless you with love this week and with freedom this week and with belief in the wrath of God this week and with a reveling in the rescue that you've enjoyed through faith. And all the people said, Amen.